Welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church. This is the first of two episodes in our mini-series on depression, where we consider how Scripture speaks to depression. If you have any comments about the show or a question about something you hear on this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find all of our contact info on our website at firstpresscolumbia.org. If you would like to stay updated on when a new episode is released, download our app. You can do so by searching for First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina in the app store of your choice. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome back to 1A. I'm your host, Josh Squires. We're continuing in our talk of depression. And what does depression mean? With me again is our intern in biblical counseling, Josh Adair. Josh, thanks for being with me. Josh, thanks so much. It's good to be back again. Thanks for being willing to tolerate your intern again. (laughs) (laughs) No toleration, my friend. No toleration. That's a joy. Well, thanks. It's good to be back. So So last time we kind of covered basics. What was depression? Gave an overview of depression. We might hit on a little bit of that again. And so this time we really want to dive more into Scripture and what does Scripture say about depression. Uh, So why don't you lead us off and fire away. That sounds good. Well, Josh, I thought it'd be helpful for us just to review last time what we talked about. We, we, We began by looking at what was the language of depression? What do we mean when we say that? And you said you walked us through a very helpful biopsychosocial spiritual perspective on how to understand depression, how it can be circumstantially related or how it can be more of a long-term difficult picture of a a long-term season of hopelessness where even for more than two weeks, your, your, your sleep, play, eat, work are affected. And then the fifth element I think you added was the long-term hopelessness. So maybe you could review that for us a little bit more clearly than I just did. (laughs) Right, right. No, I think you did a good job. So there are four domains that you're looking for, eat, sleep, work, and play. It's those four, and you're looking to see if people or if yourself find that you are responding in a negative way. That's like you Mm -hmm. do it too much or you don't do it at all. Two or more of those that have been affected for two weeks or longer give you the sense that this isn't you just being sad or depressed about an issue, but you may be finding yourself in a season of sad, mm-hmm. a season of depression. Yeah. And the, the technical language that's often used there is clinically depressed, that there's a, there's a depression, a major depressive element to it. And what we had said was that if you find yourself there, instead of life giving you happenstance ways to get out of that depression, you usually have to be more intentional about getting out of that depression. Mm. And that's where those four separate kind of exit points, bio, psycho, social, spiritual came in, kind of reviewed Mm. what those were and and how to use those in order to get out. And of course, spiritual being the most important of those four. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Spiritual being the most important and even probably one of the bigger sources of where that might come from. And so today, Josh, I thought it'd be helpful. You know, when you look at scripture, Josh, you never see a word in the original languages saying, I'm so depressed, or you never see the word depression appear in scripture. You see a lot of sadness and you see a lot of grief. You see 
lamentation, you see a variety of forms of expression of different variations of sadness. And so does scripture give us a language for this kind of sorrow? Yeah. And how does it portray this kind of sorrow? Yeah. Well, this is one of those issues much like the Trinity. Does scripture Mm. ever use the word Trinity? Mm Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. It does not. But we certainly do believe in the Trinity. And the reason why we believe in the Trinity is because it is found throughout Scripture. That God is one, but there is more than one that is that one God. And so a very difficult doctrine, one that should cause all people to pause, to worship, and to realize their own finiteness and limitation— Sure. But it's there. The doctrine of the Trinity is there. And so the question is, is is depression in Scripture? Well, the word is not found inside of Scripture. So if you did a quick Bible search on your favorite Bible app for the word depressed or depression, yeah. you're not going to find it. But is the complex of what we've talked about found anywhere in Scripture? And it absolutely is. We were recording a podcast out by now. It's a pastor's roundtable where we were talking about what do we do when pastors get discouraged. And Derek made the comment that more than half of the Psalms are blues. Mm. They're the songs of people who are down, who are distraught, who are frustrated, who are weary. And so if you begin to look at the Psalms and the Psalter, you're going to see those elements of depressed people inside the Psalter. Now, did all those people need to go and talk to a talk therapist in order to get out? No, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. They they certainly did have one another, and they were talking to the Lord and, and hopefully talking to the priests and and whoever else would have been spiritual aides at that particular point. Mm -hmm. But you do get a sense that people are down. Probably the clearest Psalm when we look at depression is Psalm 88. Yeah. Psalm 88 is the darkest Psalm in the Psalter. Mm. It ends down, goes down lower and scrapes the bottom. Mm. Usually there's this U shape to Sad Psalms, it starts high. Sure. God, you are the God who is holy and righteous. You persevere and you have helped us win incredible victories. You are kind and merciful. And then begin mm. the laments. But Lord, I feel hemmed in by all of my opponents. I mm. see people who are unrighteous living Uh, opulently, while those who love you are distraught. And so it goes low, and then it ends up again. But Lord, I know that you will take care of this, you will return. And that's a good pattern for our faith and for our prayers, Mm. is to recognize who God is, the hope that we have, the steadfastness that we have, remembering times when it seemed like we were in impossible situations, or that the Lord had turned away from us, and then, and then shown himself faithful and remembered, and then give him what it is that you're struggling with, and then profess the faith that you know he is good. So that, that U-shape is a good shape. However, Psalm 88 doesn't do that. Mm. It eschews that U-shape for more just a straight cliff. Mm. I remember when you, were, you preached on this a few years ago, mm-hmm. maybe the year before last, yeah, but you use the analogy of there was there's dark and there's black and then there's Vanta black, black within a va- yeah. Vanta black. Yeah, and you said that's what we arrive at when we come to Psalm eighty eight. That's right. 
That's right. Vanta it's Black hard. is it, it rejects ninety nine point like nine 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 percent of light, and so mm. when you paint an object Vanta Black, you lose all detail. Uh, so there's mm. this wonderful you can go YouTube it. There's this wonderful video that demonstrates a bronze mask that they have put Vanta Black on, mm. and when you look at the backside of the mask. You can see all the details because it's bronze, right? And so you see the sure. inlay of the eyes and the nose protruding and all that good stuff. But then when it flips around to where the black is, it just looks like this black oval. You cannot tell any detail. You're kidding no, me. That's crazy. It's absolutely amazing. So that's the sort of darkness that Psalm 88 is. It's so dark, you just lose all shape. You lose that U shape. It mm. just becomes nothing but blackness. Yeah. You know, verse three says for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol and it ends. Let's see. Where are you? You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Mm. My companions have become darkness. Now I think the NIV, the NIV tends to translate Psalms a little bit better than the ESV. The ESV by its philosophy of translation, is more word for word than thought for thought, which is generally what we want. We want word for word. We want precision there. But poetry is meant to convey something of thought more than just the particular word. And so the NIV has, and you have made darkness my only friend. And I think that is absolutely the good, the true rendering of what the Hebrew poet means there. Mm. And it's important to note who is writing this psalm. Yeah. So the person writing this psalm is one of the most gifted musicians of his age. And when his name comes up, he's listed as one of the three smartest men, most capable men in all of Israel, who are just one rung below Solomon. Mm. Right. So so this is a faithful man. Mm -hmm. This is a well-beloved man. This is a man in the priesthood. This is a man who is incredibly smart, who has a lot of faith, and yet ends up almost hopelessly depressed. Mm. And and I think that there's some encouragement there. I've never been where Psalm 88 is, praise the Lord. Yeah. And I hope that I'll never be there. But it's comforting to know that you can be a man like that and, and end up there, and that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Christian or a bad believer. Yeah. The other thing that's really important about Psalm 88 that I think is very hopeful for those who face depression is that God actually said, put this Psalm in my book. Amen. Right? Like if you were the Lord and someone came to you and said, Hey, I got this little ditty and it's about you. <laughs> and here's how it goes. Right. You, yeah. you have taken everything away from me. You've left mm. me absolutely alone. Even my friends hate me. That's your fault, by the way. Mm -hmm. And you have made <laughs> darkness my only friend. Right? Like, <laughs> someone submits that song to you. you. Yeah. You'd probably be like, okay. You forgot the hook that repeats seven times. Yeah, well, and don't forget how faithful I am. Right? <laughs> don't forget the whole, like, manna from heaven thing. Don't forget leading you out of Egypt. Right, I get it. You're having a bad day. I've kept you from the Philistines. Don't forget that, my you know, little lovely one. Mm -hmm. But instead, God says, "Yeah, that's right. Put it in my book. That's about me." Yeah. <laughs> 
right? That's amazing. That's intense. That's yeah. amazing. Sometimes Christians get this shame and guilt that like, if I'm sad or angry, I can't allow the Lord in on that. Mm. Now, now this is this can be kind of a fine line, so we got to talk about this for a second. Sure, yeah. It is not casting aspersions on the Lord. It is not calling him something other than what he is, holy, righteous, and in control. If you begin to, yeah. to waver from that and call him not in control or not holy or not good, you will need to repent later for that. Mm-hmm. Right? That doesn't mean that you've done something now that keeps you from ever entering into his presence. But you have sinned, and you need to repent. Yeah. However, you are able to go to him and say, I am utterly sad and angry and hurt and desolated, and I know you're in control. I don't understand why, and it seems to me offensive. Yeah. And I want out, and you're not letting me out, and I am hurt. Yeah. And you can take that to the Lord, and the Lord says, yes, bring that to me. That's an incredibly hopeful piece and allows Mm. Christians to put away the shame that, like, I can only bring my hurt and anger and grief to the Lord when it's in some sort of acceptable package. Hmm. Yeah. Well, plus, I mean, it, it challenges our understanding of providence. We like providence when it's really comforting. Right. We like providence when it's securing and, and, and affirming to us in the midst of our suffering. We get really uncomfortable when we realize that providence even means difficulty comes from our father's good hand. But it challenges us to understand that providence is not a bare doctrine that's meant to be grasped outside of God's covenantal commitment to his people. Right. And I think that's what you see in this psalm. You see an attitude of someone who who recognizes those realities of you are the one that's absolutely and totally in control of my life. And you are the one who I am frustrated and even angry in a sense with that this has happened because I'm angry at my circumstances. Right. And yet my desperate hope drives me to you to to petition you in my sadness because my situation is so dark. Right. Well and that's and powerful. Super powerful. And and the the only light at all in this psalm is the very first verse when it says, mm. O Lord, and that word is his covenant name. Yeah. Just like you said, the, the God of covenant, the God of relationship. Yeah. He is with me. I, he is my God. I am his people. O Lord, God of my salvation. That's how it begins. And so it's it's a direct address to him, all of that sadness, but recognizes who he is. He's not some stoic God far and removed, but instead he is the God who is related to him and in control of all things. And that makes the Mm. whole thing all the more frustrating and hard to understand. Mm. But in the midst of that, you find the fact that God has the control to change our circumstances. One thing that you've mentioned is that one of the benefits and needs of someone who's in a state of spiritual depression or any season of depression is a faithful presence, a, a friend to lament mm. with you. And I think that's what this psalm shows and paints a picture of, even if the psalmist who's singing it is not secured in that presence, in a sense. Mm. Would you say that that's right? Like there's a sense in which you see a picture in which God is a faithful, lamenting presence, and the psalm is that over reading it? Or I don't know. 
Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm not sure that that's where I would go initially in my read of it. And and the reason is, is that I, I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to find hope in this psalm where mm. there's not any. Mm. That's and, a good point. And when you're talking to someone who's, you know, heaven forbid, lost a child, mm. and they are in yeah. the midst of the darkest, the Vanta black of faith. That's where they are. Mm. And and you want to put in some hopeful thread in Psalm 88. Guess what? It no longer mm. rings true with them. Mm. But when you're able to just put this in front of them and say, look how black this is, and God knows, and he knows that that in his providence and in a world that is full of sin and short of glory, the ultimate glory that we're designed to be in with him in his presence, there's going to be really, really difficult things. Mm. I think somehow it makes this psalm less compassionate for the person mm. who's in that place. That's powerful. Right. And so I, I think that there, what you're saying is true. In yeah. fact, that was going to be one of my points is for us to talk about, well, what does Scripture... Scripture not only describes depression for the individual, but it describes what word to do to respond to someone who's dealing with depression. Mm. And those three elements that I always tell people are people, prayer, and presence. Three Ps. People being, you know, trying to get all the resources around someone. That's friends. That's professionals, church members, family. Prayer, that we're praying for them regularly. We're lifting them up regularly in our prayers to the Lord. And presence, our personal presence being around them, that we might be like Paul calls us to be, weeping with those who weep. Oftentimes, it's when the deepest, darkest portions of depression come along that people begin to move on. Mm -hmm. So, again, let's go back to the loss of a loved one. Mm -hmm. That grief cycle usually, and not always and not perfectly, but but usually somewhere around that six to eight week mark is when the new reality that that person is gone. You're not going to hear their voice. You're not going to be able to put your arms around them. You're not going to see them again this side of heaven Mm -hmm. begins to sink in, and that is a terrible reality. And that's when the darkest parts of status begin to hit. But it's around that time that everybody else just moves on. Like, okay, it's been six weeks since you lost this person. Time to get back to normal. And so people find themselves very isolated in their grief. Sure. And that is not at all what sure. Scripture would call us to do. Scripture calls us to be compassionate. Why? Because Christ was compassionate. Number one emotion for Christ throughout mm-hmm. his earthly ministry was compassion, to be co-moved with his people. And so I think I think your point is a valid one. I just don't know that I would see hmm. it here in Psalm 88. True, true. There, and when you think about other places in Scripture, I think people can understand on one level a dimension of depression because we have a, the book of Ecclesiastes preserved for us. Like there is meaninglessness and hopelessness in life under the sun. Right. There's this chasing of the wind in life that we're familiar with, but it's almost like to assume that that's the same as someone who's going through depression. We need to be able to understand that for someone who's in the midst of depression, like in Psalm 88, it's almost like we're trying to argue on the upshot rather than in the valley of yeah. someone. Yeah, I think in our loving and caring for people and giving people prayer and presence, we have to have an understanding of Psalm 88 to allow for someone's hopelessness to be legitimized. There's a sense in which Psalm 88 says to the person with depression, 
me too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really powerful. No, you're absolutely right. And and I do think you're right that people tend to argue with people who are depressed, especially believers who are depressed, and try to remind them of God's faithfulness, which is good. D- don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not yeah. I'm certainly not saying don't remind someone who's depressed that God is good, right, and faithful. That of of course mm. they they need that reminder. But before that, they need to know that you're not afraid of getting into the mutt of that pit with them. Mm. You know, the best thing that Job's friends did was sit down and shut up for a week mm. and just sit with him. That's the best thing they did. The moment they opened their mouths, they went astray. Mm. And so I think that what we need to do is we need to be willing, as difficult as it is, to be in the depths of the darkness. Mm. And not always have to shine our flashlight in that moment. Yeah. I think people often try to give the promises of the Lord the relief of the gospel because they're afraid to be sucked down in that depression with that person. Hmm. And so they're trying to get them up where they are. And instead, it's time to say, okay, I'm going to sit beside you in ashes with torn clothes and be quiet Hmm. and just listen, you know? And you just listen for a while. And and afterwards, and you can usually get a sense of when you're resonating and it's time to put just a little piece of hope in front of them and be like, I totally get it and I understand. I don't understand why the Lord would have this. I, I know he's trustworthy. That, that I know. And so I trust him that he's going to be working this out for you and for all those who love him. What that means and what that looks like, I'm not sure. Little pieces like that. Yeah. So it sounds like what we've been saying so far, Josh, is that we clearly see the language of a depressed sorrow in scripture through a passage like Psalm 88, where people who are in the midst of a season of clinical depression or circumstantial depression, like what we've been distinguishing all along, they need to know the hope that scripture can look at them and say, me too. You have a language and metaphor for your sorrow within, within this holy scripture. But for people who aren't in that season of depression, but who have loved ones in that season, they also need to understand that in giving people prayer and presence, we need to value the full range of expression that Scripture gives to sorrow and understand that even if we can't understand the darkness of Psalm 88, that our loved ones can be there and they're still just as much in the grips of our good Lord and Shepherd. And we won't be pulled along with it because it it sounds like we're talking about how scripture speaks to both the depressed person and to the one who loves the person who is depressed. Right. Yeah. So I I think that what I would tell someone who is in the midst of depression is that it doesn't make you sub-Christian. God knows these feelings and he knew Mm. from before the foundation of the world that you were going to be exactly where you're going to be and that I have hope for you that this will someday end. I don't know when and I don't know where. And I'm willing, and the Lord is willing to be alongside you. And for the person who has a loved one who's in the middle of depression, that he who speaks before he listens, it's his folly and his shame. Mm. And therefore, we need to do a lot of listening. You know, it's, that's that's the scriptural version of what my mom used to tell me, the Lord gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You know? <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so you need to do a lot more listening than you're doing talking. Mm. And, and honestly... 
Uh, if someone audited, and, and you sat in with counseling with me before, if someone audited what counseling looked like with me, I think one of the things that they would be surprised is it's not a whole bunch of advice giving. Mm. It's actually a lot of compassionate listening. Mm. And that that makes up probably 75% of what I do is listening mm. and trying to understand and to grieve with people who grieve and mm. let them know that I'm there, that I'm alongside them. I'm not afraid to be alongside them in the midst of whatever terrible thing that they're going through. And then mm. and then putting before them the hope that I know is true because the Lord gives it to me in his word. Mm. Amen. <laughs>